Today we're going to compare two people. One of them is likely Mary. This uh, account uh, is a, has a parallel in another gospel, and in that other gospel, uh, the woman who uh, anoints Jesus with this perfume is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Uh, Mary, the one who sat at Jesus' feet, absorbing his teaching while uh, her sister worked hard uh, to serve. Uh, and then also Mary, the the sister of Lazarus who had been dead and Jesus raised him back to life. This woman so grateful for what Jesus has done for her that she um, opens her heart and her um, what she has of value and gives it to him. And then we're comparing her with Judas. She gives to Jesus. Judas gives Jesus to the authorities. And we'll look at what motivates each one and why each one uh, responded to Jesus the way they did. We live in an age in which we are encouraged to get all we can get, to stand up for ourselves, to put ourselves forward, and to value ourselves so much that often what we end up doing is devaluing other people. And so we, we have this, this desire to, to get more and more, more and more value, more and more um, accumulation of wealth, whatever it might be, and, and we continue to try to fill ourselves I feel like I've preached this sermon many times already uh, from different passages, this thought that um, the world tells us that we need more and more, and God tells us we need to give. And if you've, if you've fully embraced God's truth on this, then uh, you may not need to listen. But if you fully embrace God's truth on this, I, probably, I don't think I've ever met you because we all continue to strive to learn more and to do more as Jesus um, shows us to do, and that is to give, to, to put aside our agendas and adopt the agenda of God's kingdom. Now, here we see a picture uh, with this woman of someone who um, is generous with Jesus. In fact, she is extravagant in her generosity. It, the, the disciples, uh, when they say, why is she doing this? This perfume that she is putting on, anointing Jesus with, it could be sold for a year's wage. Now, I'm not sure what that was back then, but consider maybe 35000 40000 a lot of money. And we can't even imagine uh, a, a vial of perfume, a pint of perfume that would, that would be that valuable today. But it was indeed, and the jar in which it was held was alabaster, was also very valuable. She broke that in order to anoint Jesus with it. Uh, extremely extravagant. And I wonder if someone came into, let's say, a congregational meeting at our church and said, I have this very valuable jar of perfume. Should I um, anoint Jesus with it or sell it and use it for the building fund or use it for uh, the, the mission fund, whatever? I, most of us would say, sell it. 
because we don't understand Jesus as well as this woman understood Jesus. We don't understand how um, valuable he is and this level of extravagance that is so very appropriate uh, for Jesus. And when we look at this, we realize that she's really reflecting the extravagance of God. She does something beautiful. Jesus says, she has done something beautiful for me. In verse 10, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Well, God is a God of beauty. All you have to do is look outside and see it. Some of the, the uh, bulbs are coming up out of the ground and the colors that we see in the flowers, the, the buds on the trees. Uh, and the beauty of creation is amazing. It's interesting in Genesis 2 when God is describing the creation um, and the garden. In the garden are trees. And those trees are beautiful to the eye. And they also bear fruit, it says in uh, Genesis 2.9. And it's important that to God that their beauty be acknowledged as well as their utility for uh, bearing fruit for us to eat. Consider the fish in the sea and the vibrant colors of so many fish and the extravagance that God has uh, laid out when, when he colors some of those fish at the deepest level of the sea that are never seen and yet are beautiful. The flowers, the intricacy of creation, it is beautiful, it is extravagant, it is unnecessary, is it not? God didn't need to make things beautiful. God didn't need to make things awe-inspiring. God just needed to make things that worked. Well, he did both, and God values both. God values beauty, and Jesus values the beauty of this woman's act toward him. But then we say, well, yeah, but what about the poor? As the disciples ask in verses 8 and 9, we also would say, that is a lot of value that you're pouring on him. What about the poor? And Jesus says, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And I love what Mark does uh, in his parallel to this passage. Uh, he adds something that, that Matthew has taken out. Uh, Mark says, um, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And I think what, what Mark is acknowledging that Jesus was pointing the finger at them saying, this is her stuff. This is her perfume. This is her nard, which is what the word is for what this stuff is. It's up to her how to use it. You can give to the poor from your own funds. And he, I think he's, he's uh, pointing out their, their judgmentalism there and the fact that they probably, if it were theirs, wouldn't give it to the poor. But who knows? But the other thing, when he says that she poured this perfume on my body, verse 12, she did it to prepare me for burial. She understood better than any, any of the others who were there what was about to happen. She understood that Jesus would be crucified. She understood that he would be buried. She understood 
I think, to a larger degree than anyone else, what this meant. And in so doing, she reflects the very heart of Jesus. In John's account of this, um, she is, it includes the fact that she wiped his feet with her hair. And that's at, in John 12. And then in John 13, we see that Jesus washes the disciples' feet. She, in, in just a few verses, late, few verses earlier, is washing his feet, and then he is washing their feet. And all of this is to reflect, I believe, God's extravagant love. God wants to be extravagant. God wants to share beauty and wonder with people. And we tend to maybe look at things in a more utilitarian way. And God says, don't always look at things in a utilitarian way, but enjoy the beauty. And enjoy the beauty that I, God says, share with you. As we transition from looking at this woman to looking at Judas, I uh, am, want to tell you a couple weeks ago, uh, I got a, a message, a Facebook message from a friend. And she and I used to write sermons together. She would write the children's sermon and I would write the adult sermon. And we would um, often on, I'd like to say Tuesday night, but it was usually Friday or Saturday night, talk about what we were going to say and uh, help each other finish up uh, what we were going to say to me, from me to the adults and from her to the kids. And we like to tie those two together as much as we could. And she was preparing another children's sermon a couple weeks ago at, at the church where she is now and wrote me this question. What's the difference between praise and thanks? And I had run across that uh, a number of years ago when I came, when I was introduced to the, the formula for prayer that people often use, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration being praise, confession being confession, um, thanksgiving, giving thanks, and supplication being uh, what we are asking God for. And I tried to use that model for my prayers, and I started with the A, the adoration, and I wrote some things out, and then I did my confession part, and then moved into the, um, the thanks part, and I realized that my first part, the adoration, the praise, was really thanksgiving. And that realization has helped me greatly, and I was able to help my friend to understand the difference too, because I believe that the difference between thanksgiving and praise is that thanksgiving is thanking for what the other does for us, and praise is thanking the other for who the other is. When we praise God, we are praising God for who God is. When we thank God, we're thanking God for what God has done for us. And the praising doesn't always come easily because our minds seem to be attuned to what we can get. And Judas is the prime example of that. Judas wanted Jesus on Judas's terms. He wanted a powerful Messiah to put others in their place. 
He wanted a powerful Messiah to push out the Romans and give uh, his nation its due in, in the society to, to elevate them once again. He wanted to be next to the Messiah who did all this so that he would receive authority and honor and power. And as Jesus moved toward his crucifixion, Judas realized this was not likely to come from Jesus. Jesus continued to say that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die. So it is very likely that Judas decided to go switch teams to find those who would maintain power after Jesus died and align with them so that he could keep what he thought was valuable, which is earthly power. John, in his account, um, points out that, that uh, Judas liked wealth as well. Uh, in his account, where it says that um, Judas said, why don't you give this to the poor? John says, um, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas had his um, wrong motivations. Judas saw Jesus as a cause instead of as the Christ. And when Jesus didn't pay off the way he thought he should, Judas turned away. But he learned a horrible lesson. He learned that turning away from Jesus, betraying Jesus, comes at a great cost. Seeking benefit for ourselves, seeking to use God for our goals and purposes is a dead end, especially if it causes us to turn our backs on God. And that is exactly what Judas did, and it ended up killing him, literally. We don't die immediately, but maybe a slow, incremental death. The more we try to get what we want, the more we try to focus on God for Jim's sake, what God can do for me, rather than on who God is and what I can do for God. Judas isn't the only one. We all do it. Probably not as badly or as much or as obviously as the Buffalo Bills player back in 2011 who dropped a pass that could have been a winning pass in the end zone, and he tweeted to God. I don't know if God has an account or not, but uh, he tweeted to God, I praise you 24-7, and this is what you do? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. <laughs> Ridiculous. But we all do it, don't we? We all seek God for what God can do for us. We all seek God thinking, well, Lord, do this for me, do this for me. And we want God to put his stamp of approval on all our plans and, and all our desires. And that's not what knowing God is. Knowing God Serving God is loving God for who God is. God as the extravagant giver. 
God, as the extravagant lover of our souls, calls us to love extravagantly and give extravagantly too, and to break this pattern that is so common, and, and it's probably innate to the human will, the human psyche, to seek to keep getting and getting and getting, and God wants that to turn around and help us to see that we have everything we need because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We have full acceptance with God. We have eternal life. We have promise of God working everything ultimately for our good. There is nothing more that we truly need than God. And yet... We think we need more, and we ask God to provide that more for us. The relationship to the church can be like that, too. Sky Jathani, who's a, a pastor, wrote this about uh, how we, we sometimes treat the church. He said, we come to church and we want a practical sermon. We want something useful, something I can apply today that will make a difference. We want results. We want God, not because of who he is, but for what he can do for me. Jesus becomes our duct tape WD-40 combo pack. All we need to fix just about everything. We praise him as the almighty improver and means by which our dreams and goals can be achieved. As a result, our worship often carries a hidden pragmatic agenda. We believe that our worship or giving will obligate God to act on our behalf rather than beautiful. Our worship becomes transactional. And that transactional cost-benefit analysis way of dealing with life of will this give me what I hope it will and if so I will invest what I need to to get what I need out of it characterizes many people's relationship with God and many people's relationship with the church and the church didn't we didn't do ourselves any favors when we um, made ourselves so conscious of how we can attract people by giving them the, what they want. We have what everyone needs. We have the truth of the kingdom of God. This is what they need. It does not need to be packaged in a way that makes it more palatable for people. It is what they truly need. If we are honestly and effectively sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the people will, on a deep level, recognize that that is the answer to the cry of their souls. Our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ's church should not be one of seeking what we can get, but of knowing that God has given us all we need. And our response then is to give extravagantly, to love extravagantly, reflecting the love of God, the heart of God into this world. And I will close with the words of Psalm 27, verse 4. Is this the cry of your heart? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple.